getting our eyes off of ourselves and others and onto Jesus. That's a key to breaking free from bitterness. Stay with us for Abounding Grace. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You lay down your life. That I would be set free. Oh, Jesus, I sing for all that you've done for me. You've been unfairly treated? Sure, we've all been there, or at the very least, that was our perception. And when that occurs, we can so easily grow angry and disappointed. It's at that time that bitterness can easily creep in. It happened to Absalom, and it can happen to us. Today on Abounding Grace, we'll see how to go from bitter to better, as our series in 2 Samuel resumes with Pastor Ed Tanner. Here he is now in chapter 15. How about the children of Israel? Unsatisfied discontent with the provision of God through the manna. I mean, God was taking care of them day after day, day after day. On the sixth day, he did, and they had enough for the seventh day where they didn't have to go out and work and they could keep the Sabbath. And they, they were taken care of. Whatever it was in that substance had all the nutrients to take care of their bodies completely. And yet what happened? They were dissatisfied with the manna. They were unhappy with it. They were tired of it. It was the same old, same old every day. It, it wasn't no longer a blessing from God. In the beginning, it was a blessing from God. We're hungry. And then God provided this, this substance out there. Just go out and get it. Eat it. Take it in. It'll bring strength to your body. And certainly for days and after days, thank you, Lord, for the manna. Thank you, Lord, for the manna. Thank you, Lord, for taking care of me. Thank you for your provision. But one day... I don't like manna. Tired of it. I'm tired of the manna. And I know that it was most likely a simple statement, I don't like the food that's been given to me. But in a very real way, they were also saying at the very same time, I don't like God, what you're doing in my life. I don't like what you're providing. It's not good enough. And what did they do? You recall the children of Israel, when they tired of the manna, they cried out for what? Meat. We want some meat. Sick of the manna. Sick of the angel food. I'm sick of everything that makes me strong and keeps me strong every day. The thing that I feed my family with. The thing that I can share with my neighbor. The thing that brings us together at the table for fellowship and love. I'm tired of it. We want meat. What did God do? Not only did he give them meat, but they had so much meat that, well, it rotted in their mouths. I would say that's lighting your field on fire. You see and you read through the disciples, they were in a place where they needed to learn a lesson of God's provision and protection. They needed to learn that Jesus would take care of them. They needed to learn that up to this point in their life, they needed to understand that when Jesus says something, he means it. And so what does Jesus do at the perfect timing? He says, get in the boat and go across the sea. We're going to go to the other side. That was both a statement of a directive statement and a promise. Get in, go across, we're going to go to the other side. But around the middle of the Sea of Galilee, a large storm came and began to rock the boat. The disciples freaked out, as I'm sure you and I would. 
we, we hear these Bible studies, but man, you know, we're, we're not in the boat and we're not in the middle of the storm like they were. I'm sure we would respond very similarly. I don't know how many people I, oh, don't worry about it. Uh, I have a three-point message in the midst of this storm. Everybody just sit down. Jesus said, number one, we're going to, you know, we, we see it now so we can plant seeds so that when you're in the middle of a storm, you know that the Lord said you're going to get to the other side. We say that now. But man, it's hard when you're in the middle of the storm. It's very hard. That's why you're taking in the word of God. You're taking in the word of God. You're taking in the word of God because you don't know when. You don't know when. I don't know when. But I know that as I look back in the past, in the episodes in my life where I didn't know when, God's word was alive in my life just for that time. The disciples get into the middle of the Sea of Galilee. They're overcome by a storm. They're crying out, Jesus, where is he at? He's sleeping, he's resting, calm, because he knows they're getting to the other side. They wake him up, he calms the sea, and the disciples learned a valuable lesson as their field was set on fire. If you take this approach to scriptures and you look at the various trials throughout the, throughout the Bible, you will see that God is not averse to lighting your field on fire to get your attention, that your faith might be built and your relationship with him might grow. And the Bible also speaks of fire burning away things that are, that are not valuable, burning away. You know, we as believers, the Bible says that we are going to stand before God for what's known as the Bema Seat Judgment, where fire will refine the motives of our works. And we will be surprised how many things we've done in our lives that are just wood, hay, and stubble. And there's no reward for them. Because although we, we did them, We did them with the wrong motives or we did them in a way that, you know, fire is a refining process. And even though Absalom is lighting this field on fire to bring back, you know, to get him in a position so that he can continue his plot to take over the kingdom, the picture of lighting a field on fire is not uncommon in your life. Maybe that's you today. Your field is on fire. And there's only one thing that God wants you to do and that's come to him. He's getting your attention. He's drawing your attention back to him. I don't have the exact answer for why he's drawing your attention back to him. I don't know what he's trying to put his finger on, but I surely suspect that you do. But for those of you that aren't in the midst of a heavy situation or a field on fire, listen, live your life in such a way where you can hear the still small voice of the Lord. Read the Bible and do it. Read the Bible and do it. Read the Bible and do it. That'll keep you in a place close to the Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. So Joab back in as we close up. Joab is happy. He's pleased to see the heir come home. Absalom, he's allowed to come home. Becomes a more popular than ever, even though he's still kind of under a, a house arrest. The fact that he had plotted the murder of his half-brother and had proved his guilt by running away meant little to the people. They weren't interested in the substance of his character. They idolized this young man. He was good looking. He had all the right words and yet inwardly he was corrupt. And lack of character was unimportant to the people. What really mattered to them was status, wealth and good looks and what could he do for me? Which is not unlike the political process today. Overlooking the character and the substance of a person and rather voting along the lines or going along the lines of what will best benefit me. And what's important is what will best glorify God. What will bring God into the situation? And here's an example of what's going to happen 
when what happens when people follow after looks instead of substance. And by the time we come to the end, there's some sort of reconciliation with Absalom, but it's too late. Why? Because for five years, and this is where we want to end, five years, bitterness has been growing in the heart of Absalom. Bitterness is poisonous, church. It's infectious. It's destructive. The dictionary defines bitterness as anger and disappointment at being treated unfairly or seemingly unfairly. The word here in the Greek, the original language, or excuse me, in the Hebrew, the original language here has the idea of a wicked person whose life and behavior is now offensive to God and obnoxious to man. Understood that way, we can see and understand how easy bitterness can creep into our lives and create a foothold in our thinking. It begins with a wrong or a perceived wrong. It continues with a response to that wrong or perceived wrong. And then it's cultivated through anger, from anger to resentment, from resentment to just full-blown bitterness, and from bitterness to defilement, where it just defiles everyone around you, including it starts with you, and then it defiles everyone around us. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 10, the heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share its joy. And bitterness is all over the scriptures. You can jot it down and look it up as the Lord is just speaking to you on this topic. Bitterness can pop up in a church family, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Bitterness causes a person to live in darkness, 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. It was bitterness that grew in the heart of Joseph's brothers that turned into hatred and ultimately murder and lying to their dad, Genesis 37. Bitterness enveloped Cain to the point of murder, Genesis chapter 4. And that's why I believe, and I'd ask you to turn here because we haven't turned in our Bibles, turn all the way back to Hebrews uh, chapter uh, 12, because I believe that's why this warning comes toward the end of the New Testament. Before the New Testament closes, before we get to the final judgment in Revelation, before we get to the final Maranatha, even so, Lord, come quickly. Before we get to God making all wrongs right and a new heavens and a new earth, right before we get to Revelation, there's this little verse tucked away in Hebrews chapter 12 that we would do well to receive and take into our hearts today. And I draw your attention to verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 12. The Bible says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Notice, lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by this, many become defiled. Let me read it to you from the New Living Translation. Try to live in peace with everyone and seek to live a clean and holy life for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you will miss out on the special favor of God. Watch out that no bitter root of unbelief rises up among you for whenever it springs up, many are corrupted by its poison. It's interesting to me that bitterness and falling short of the grace of God are connected by the Holy Spirit right here in this section. How do we fall short of the grace of God? What does that exactly look like? Well, first of all, it's not a passage of Scripture that's teaching, you know, some doctrine that you lose your salvation. That's not falling short of the glory or the grace of God. Rather, it's describing an attitude that comes up in our lives when our eyes are on others and not on Jesus. When we are watching others, I can't help but remember when John, at the end of John's gospel, 
uh, when Peter was concerned about John, he says, what about him? What did Jesus say? Hey, don't worry about him. You follow me. And when we fail to follow Jesus and instead get our eyes off on some other person, some other situation, then we are sure to fall short of the grace of God. We are for sure going to lead to stumbling in our lives. A better translation of this phrase would be along the lines, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short because of the grace of God. Because God going, God's showing grace to someone else. Because God's being gracious with us, but we don't see it. For you student, Bible students, you know in Hebrews chapter 12, it opens up with running the race. Keeping our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. We're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. We're to keep our eyes on Jesus. He's an example to run. He's the only perfect one. We're to lay aside the stuff that slows us down, that hinders our walk. We're to understand that the Father's for us and not against us. And we're to be careful now at the end of Hebrews 12 to be careful of bitterness. Why? Because after the discipline of the Lord or after the issues in other people's lives, we're vulnerable to bitterness toward those that are enjoying the grace of God in their lives. And the danger of our eyes getting off Jesus and onto others, that's a real danger. And oftentimes the root of bitterness, the very essence of bitterness starts when our eyes are off, off the Lord and onto someone else, including ourselves. Because bitterness is so rooted in whether it was a real wrong or a perceived wrong in our lives. That's the very essence. That's the very seed. And then recognizing the grace of God maybe in someone else's life or in the very person that we think wronged us. And if we nurse that grudge and we nurse that anger and we, and we rehearse it, hey, the Bible says, be careful. You're crying out in your prayer life. It's not fair, God. It's not right, God. It's not reasonable, God. You're, you're, instead of taking your cares and concerns to the Lord, you're going to others and rehearsing the whole scenario to someone else, establishing in your heart that animosity and looking for people that will agree with you. You're just setting yourself up for failure. You're just setting yourself up for destruction. I'm just finding myself not running to the one who said that I could cast all my cares upon him because he cares for me. Instead, I'm finding myself in difficult times crying out with some self-righteousness in my heart instead of running to the Lord and trusting him with my life, trusting him with my situation, trusting him with this unfairness perceived or not, and just knowing that he's going to work in that. For five years, Absalom's nursed this grudge. And now we're going to see the root of it. You see, everyone faces difficult times. Everyone faces disappointment. Everyone faces pain. It's a common part of our lives. And as a result of living in sinful times, we're all going to face disappointment, challenges, setbacks, or as was shared earlier, obstacles in life. That is part of life. Well, well let me show you something. Turn back to Exodus 15. This is where we'll close. We won't go to it in depth, but I want to throw it out there for you. You can study it on your own. In Exodus 15, we have a time in the life of the children of Israel 
where God has done great and miraculous things, so much so in their deliverance, Exodus chapter 15, there's so much so in the deliverance of being taken from slavery in Egypt, being given, protected from Pharaoh's armies. They come up to the water and they're trapped, mountains on either side of them, the water in front of them, and God parts the sea for them. And, and then as they're going through, they see the Egyptians following them and they die. I mean, it's glorious, it's wonderful. Chapter 15 opens up with the children of Israel singing a song. It is a glorifying of what God has done. It's a song of victory. It's a song of deliverance. They're talking, look in verse, nine, uh, verse 18. The Lord will reign forever and ever. The horses of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and the horsemen into the sea. And the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went by dry land. And, I mean, victory, victory, victory. You would think that the rest of chapter 15 is just going to be, man, I don't care what we face. I don't care what we come up against. That, that they're just going to, on their lips, do you remember the Red Sea? Do you remember Pharaoh? Let's sing the song, guys. Come on. But isn't it true? In the most difficult of times, that's the last place you want to sing a song. <laughs> and somebody comes with a song in their heart and you're like, stop it. Be quiet. I don't even like that song. There were times, there were times when I came right into this very sanctuary and just sat with my head down through the whole service. And the only time my head went up was, I don't like that song in my life right now. It had nothing to do with the worship team. It had nothing to do with the song. It had everything to do with my heart. It was a song glorifying God, or it was a song of you know, victory over triumph over trials, or, and there I was in the midst of my trial, and songs were not. Now, I still, in my life, I still wanted to present myself to the Lord, so I wanted to be in the environment, but I was just honest with the Lord, man. I didn't like that song. I don't like it. I don't like those words. I'll sing every other song, but I'm not singing those words. And the Lord's just telling my heart, like, you need to sing those words. They're good words. They're words of victory. They're words of building faith. And I know there are many times where you come into the sanctuary, and, and I'm not talking about being critical of music or styles or anything, none of that. I'm just talking about, man, you're in a situation in your life and the pastor has prayed about the songs to sing and, and one of the reasons why God gave him that song was he knew you would be here and the words were supposed to just speak into your heart and, but you're there and you go, I don't want, I'm not singing that song. Like God's given us music that we might have a song in the night, that we might rejoice even in the midst, you know, and rejoice in a past victory or rejoice by faith in a future victory. And if the Lord sends somebody with a song to you, don't be so mean to them. Don't be so quick to turn them off. Just receive it. Say thank you very much until the Lord can soften your heart so that the words will really speak to your heart, minister to your life. That's where they're at. But they don't sing songs when they come. Notice in verse 22, it says, Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. Which, by the way, always a good thing, you know. After a song, you can expect there's wilderness ahead. Remember that even, even Jesus was led out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And here they are singing a song, but then they go and they go out into the wilderness. They went three days in the wilderness, verse 22, and notice they found no water. Now, when they came to Mara, you might want to mark that word Mara. If you don't, if you don't have it already, write in your Bibles, bitter, that's what it means. It means bitter. So they went from the song of victory to bitter. So quickly, three days. And they couldn't drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. So they named the, therefore the name of it was called Marah. 
So it's funny if you look at it. Uh, when they came to bitter, they could not drink the waters of bitter, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called bitter. If you're a bitter person, that's how your life is. And that's why people don't call anymore. Or that's why you're only surrounded with people that agree with you now. That's why you, you don't want to be around anyone anymore. Because bitter to bitter to bitter to bitter, bitter, therefore, you're bitter. And so here they are. People murmured against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Now why in the world would they murmur after such great victory? Bitter. That's where they're at. So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And then he cast it into the waters, and the waters were made sweet. And then he made a statute and an ordinance for them. And there he tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments, keep all his statutes, I'll put none of the diseases on you which I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord God who heals you, Jehovah Rapha. And they came to Elam, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees, so they camped there by the waters. Again, we've went in this in depth in, when we studied Exodus, but just, just take it for what it is. Victory, three days journey, bitter waters, made them murmurs and complainers, to which Moses did the right thing. He cried out to the Lord. God gave him the solution. What was the solution? The tree. The tree speaks to us of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the answer to your bitterness, to get your eyes back on the Lord. The cross is empty today. Jesus is no longer in the tomb, and he is the answer to the root of bitterness in your life, that he will lead you away from it. You don't have to go from bitter to bitter to bitter to bitter, so then now we call you bitter. I was, if we had time, and I don't have time, but we were going to also go through a study in the life of Naomi, because she was, she was greatly grieving and great, but she became bitter because of her grieving and because of the circumstances in her life. And that wasn't God's will for her life. It's not God's will for our lives. God's will for our lives is to, to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the Father to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us and to run our race with joy. I put that backwards, but it's all in Hebrews chapter 12. That's his heart. To take the cross and to throw it in the bitter waters. And the cross makes bitter sweet. And then verse 27, we go from victory to bitter. And the very next thing where God leads you when he delivers us from bitterness is to Elam. Where there's a plenty of water and beautiful shade in the palm trees. That's God's heart for you. God's heart is not for us to be poisoned and destroyed by bitterness. God's heart is for us to enjoy the provision of God, the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, and trust him with our life. Listen, the issues in your life that are related to situations and people, situations and people aren't the problem. The problem is your personal relationship with the Lord. That's what the Bible says. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Throw the tree Throw the cross into that resentment, into that anger, into that bitterness. Let the Lord bring sweetness back into your life. Let him lead you to Elam where there were 12 wells of water, 70 palm trees, and that's where they camped. They didn't camp by the waters of Mara. Notice that. They're just passing through. It was always God's will to get them to Elam. That's where they were going to camp, in the shade with plenty of fresh water. Mara was just a stopping off point. And why? Because God says, there he tested them in verse 25. 
Thanks for studying alongside us today on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. If you'd like to hear this message from 2 Samuel again, go online to AboundingGraceRadio.com. And we also offer an app, too. Search for Ed Taylor in the App Store or Google Play. In Hebrews, we read that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So to say faith is important would be an understatement. It's the key to a successful Christian life. But what is faith? Where does it come from? How does it work? What does it accomplish? Those questions and more are uncovered in a book we'd like to recommend to you by Chuck Smith. It's titled, Faith. When you give a donation of $25 or more to Abounding Grace, ask for a copy of Faith. Give us a call at 877-30-GRACE, and we can help you with that. That number again, 877-30-GRACE. You can also order the book through our online store at calvaryco.store. Please also remember, it's your financial support that helps us continue Abounding Grace on this station and many others like it. We're constantly hearing great reports of what God is doing in our listeners' lives, and your support helps to make that possible. So, thank you. You can make a secure donation online at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Well, glad you've taken time out to study the Word with us, and be sure to join Pastor Ed Taylor tomorrow for Abounding Grace when we'll continue our series in 2 Samuel. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado and online at AboundingGraceRadio.com.